0: Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Tennis with an Accent, produced by our friends at Red Circle. This is Saqib once again hosting the show. Roland Garros has contributed, and uh, we have the honor of uh, uh, sharing the space with Steve Flink, Hall of Fame writer and tennis.com tennis channel contributor. Welcome to the show, Steve.
1: Saqib, it's great to be back with you again. I've enjoyed it in the past, and here we are on the heels of another another major just behind us, and I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about here
0: yeah I'm sure and uh, once again just for the listeners Steve just got back in town like most uh, you know the tennis community they're all you know some are still in transit some have already made home so this is again a special podcast because he's still you know very rich with you know all the experiences he consumed in Paris so Steve let me just uh, get started with you've been covering this event for a while so this event uh, had some renovations it's kind of a crammed event I haven't been to Australian Open but I've seen Wimbledon and I've seen US Open so the U.S. Open seems pretty big, a lot of space, and this is more like a, you know, there's mistake to Roland Garros and Wimbledon because not much has changed. So what are some of the changes? And were you impressed with uh, the renovations they did uh, this year?
1: Well, I think that there, I thought that the Chatrier Stadium was looking very good. I mean, I sense where it's gonna be terrific when the roof is done. We had to move to a temporary press facility which is actually a, a slight distance away, just across the way from Chatrier, and uh, but we'll be back in Chatrier next year. But the stadium itself was—it was—I—I it was, I, I liked the structural changes they've made already, and I can only imagine when the roof is in how great it's going to look in in uh, 2020. I, I can't wait for that.
0: Uh, and this is again one of those tournaments uh, like U.S. Open is in Queens. This is, I think, on still in Paris. Uh, uh, and space was always an issue and uh, I was there once as a spectator and when it rains uh, you know and if a crowd is coming out of the stadium there's really literally no place to you know hide uh, that walkway that leads to Suzanne Longlawn so you think with the new space and they're also trying to I think uh, put a small park you, uh, you think uh, some of these issues uh, will be better handled like uh, as far as the fans go or uh, do you have a comment for that I mean uh, I know they have limited space but uh, Anything? Yeah, it's
1: hard to judge. I was just there the second weeks. So I it's hard to judge, but I get the sense that it has been very well planned and they had the new court, the Simone Matu, they that everybody loved that court and and I think it'll all come together next year. I mean, this was still a transitional year, but I'm very encouraged about what they what they have in store for next year and I think adding that new show court has already helped in terms of the the ability of people to roam around the place and get around during that first week when it's so congested
0: yeah so yeah let's see I mean uh, the roof is again uh, tied into the scheduling uh, issues uh, at least of the majors and we'll come back to that part of the conversation a little later but let's talk about the the champion let's start with Ash Barty. I mean this is this is a player you uh, you as in like anyone you know she's such a delight to watch a very complete game. And uh, I know some of it is more uh, cliche talk, but honestly, uh, her name was uh, doing rounds even in our podcast. Mert was pretty excited. Uh, you know, he gave her like high regards for like clay, but I don't know if anybody expected her to win the trophy. She probably was in some people's shortlist. How surprised were you to see her get over her first major on the clay as an I Aussie? I was
1: surprised. Once the draw broke a little bit, I wasn't coming into the tournament. I would not have had her. In my top three or four candidates but i was really delighted to see the way she performed and you know as you know she's got a great serve she she has great all-around wide-ranging ability and she's got a terrific forehand comfortable coming to the net wonderful touch off her backhand side she can use that drop shot so effectively off the backhand but still drive the two-hander i think she's got an awful lot going for her but i didn't see it there i didn't see it now i mean she would lost early in rome once things once we got down to the quarters and you saw who you know Serena was already gone and Osaka was gone and you saw then I saw the possibilities uh, once it had opened up I thought wow she could actually win this tournament but I do think that the key match was of course that semifinal against Anna Samova because here's this young fearless american and Ash had her down in the first set I don't know if you followed this one 5 love 1540 to win the set 6-love in, un, in under 20 minutes and somehow lost the set in a tie break. Uh, and, uh, and she admitted later that she'd thrown that away. Very gutsy of her opponent, but very surprising someone of Ash's experience could lose a set like that. Then goes down 3-love in the second set and wins that on a run of six games. Then goes down a break in the third set and wins that. That was a very gritty victory. She didn't have her best stuff going for her that day the way she did in the final. And I thought that was the moment to me that defined her. Because you have to get through those matches where you're fighting yourself as as well as your opponent and where you let opportunities elude you. And she somehow managed to do it that day. I was very impressed. Because I thought after the first sentence and then going down 3-11 the second that we might be losing her. And I'm glad in the end that she won because I think she's such a worthy uh, victor.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And that kind of a match can, uh, you know, now we know, you know, this is a match that uh, maybe propelled her to play a flawless final in in tough conditions. But at the same time, you you rightfully said these are the matches that make or break had she lost that match. And, you know, this could have maybe lingered on for a while, but I guess. uh, Oh, I
1: think it could have been devastating, could have been really devastating because she would have known that the final was a real possibility. And she just would have kicked herself, especially for the first set. Uh, because i thought if she would have closed that first set out that semi-final might have been much like the final mm-hmm. uh instead it got very complicated but i uh, full marks to her for the way she she competed throughout those three sets
0: so so let me ask maybe a personal question on your approach when you cover these majors and i'm sure uh you choose your matches or there may be some editorial you know uh, reference that you go by. So was Ash Barty and Anissa were some of these players in your agenda, were you covering them throughout the fortnight or you got a peek at them when at the business and, uh, you know, they were the few names that were remaining.
1: Well, it's a combination of the two. I mean, I, I, I just try to pick and choose day by day on what, what, what I feel is the most appealing or, and then, you know, we do have this additional feature, all the reporters do, which is really nice to have that if I've chosen to go watch Barty and, one of the other top women is playing at the same time, you have a feature at your desk on your screen where you can go back. It's called match analysis and you can go back and watch the whole match. Uh, so at least you can see the matches that you didn't watch live and, and, and get a feel for what went on. And that never used to be the case. It's only in the last several years that we've had that feature. So then I, then I feel less reluctance about choosing one match over, over another. Cause I feel like, what I've missed, or in some cases, I'll jump from court to court. I'll go from Lenglan back to Chatrier and back to Lenglan again, depending on what's going on as I'm following the scores.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, what, what was this tournament like on the women's side for the American women? Some of the young ones really made, you know, a, a run. Uh, you know, Sofia Kenin had a big win over Serena Williams. Anisimova was there in semis. You know, almost had the semifinal one, and then Maddie Keys, uh, you know, came all the way. Uh, to the quarterfinals. Uh, Sloan Steven also was in the quarterfinals. so it was uh, a fairly good uh, uh, Roland Garros for the American ladies.
1: Oh, you summed it up well. I mean those four were terrific and I I really couldn't fault Sloan that much uh, she came up against Joe Conna at her very best. And watching Joe Connor that day against Sloan, I thought I thought that uh, I thought there was a great chance she'd be in the finals. And frankly, I really think that would have been a much better final if she had been facing uh, Ash Barty. I think it would have been much more competitive. But that's the way it goes. I, I did, but I'm saying I wouldn't blame Sloan. I think Maddie Keys consistently goes deep into these majors, it's impressive. Doesn't seem to matter how well she's played along the way leading up to the slams. She, she does good work in the slams. And then Kennan was, I mean, there was almost an arrogance about her. In, in, but I, I mean that in a positive way that she was completely undaunted by playing serena she just acted like the court belonged to her and and she completely outplayed her and i was impressed with that that, that when it got down to the latter stages of the second set no tightness she just battled through and uh, i i i i loved i loved what she did and of course the kid who we just talked about anna Samova, what a great run and she's got a terrific temperament and there's a sort of shades of sharapova in her you know in her demeanor and uh, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, she fought so hard in the semis. And I know she's going to it's not the kind of thing where she's going to be satisfied with getting to the penultimate round of the tournament. She's going to want much more for herself but I'm very encouraged about it. beautiful backhand down the line. And uh, she uh, she has easy power, as they say, in her game. So I love the way she played. I I think all told with what these four did, it was a very good tournament for the American women.
0: And I think even Halep said, right, before her match or after her loss, she said, you know, these, this younger generation of players, you know, they are just so fearless. They, I mean, not in a bad way, but, you know, they, when they're on the court, there's so much belief and, you know, they just uh, play the match. And sometimes even, I think Osaka said that, if you're good, uh, you don't feel the pressure. I think there's, there's this exuberance, this, this, you know, this uh, thing about youth uh, that sometimes does, you know, finds its own way and sometimes the most experienced players... Come short. Uh, So, did you uh, notice some kind of that fearlessness in Anisimova, even though she lost the semifinals? Uh, Oh,
1: very much, very much so. And you know, let's face it; she also took apart what she did against Halep was very impressive. She treated her like like Halep was a club player. I mean, she just she hit her off the court, and so I think she gained a lot of confidence from this tournament. I do like that spunk that she has i i like her attitude a lot and was uh, that
0: the biggest upset of this tournament according to you on either side uh, considering... well i mean that
1: and that and ken and, and and with serena i i i'm comparable but i guess when you look at this kid all things considered you could argue that hers was the biggest and Simona's is the defending champion and i i, I going in i thought simona i thought her experience would would take her through but that was not the case and uh, I, I was very impressed with her that day, and again, in her loss.
0: Hmm. Uh, so let's talk about the finalists, uh, Marketa Van uh, How many of her matches did you watch, or were you able to watch, while you were covering this role on Garros, and what were your impressions when you finally did uh, catch a glimpse of her?
1: Of Van Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see her before the final. Uh, and actually, she was playing Joe and, and it was at the same time as... Uh, you know, it was at the same time as Ash Barty and Anna Simovas. I really, I mean, I saw a little on my screen. I went back and looked at chunks of it. It's not the same as seeing her in person. But I felt she was a little bit daunted by the occasion. I was happy that she got three holes in the second set. You know, the first set she was down four love before you knew it. And Ash had that under control. And the second set, I thought it was, it was a better effort more competitive. I, I like that her, her lefty serve. I, I think she can probably play a lot better than that. And, you know, maybe it would have been a tighter match with Ash had she met her in the quarters or the round of 16. But I didn't feel like she was ready to handle the the surroundings of being in a major final. And therefore, it made it fairly predictable. There wasn't, to me, a lot of tension there. It was never a sense to me that Ash could lose that match.
0: And I think you also have to feel for uh, Vandroshova because... Uh, given the circumstances of the weather and the scheduling, uh, she hadn't played on Shatria prior to the final. so that usually is kind of an unsettling feeling in the biggest match of her career on one of the biggest showcases, you know, courts of the world, and you just haven't stepped on it before in the fortnight. Yeah,
1: it's tough. It's, you're right. That's very tough. On the other hand, she didn't have a lot to lose, and she was probably pleasantly surprised to be in the finals, and I. It, if she would have had a slightly different mindset, maybe she could have done a little better. But look, uh, the bottom line is that was much more about Ash Barty showing off her great talent and versatility in that final than it was any deficiencies in her opponent. And uh, that's certainly how I looked at it.
0: Hmm. And Ash Bartley, Barty, I think, is the first Australian, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, since uh, Margaret Code on the women's side when she yeah. beat Chrissy Evert, What is it, 73 or 74? Yeah, huh.
1: 73. I was there for that, by the way. And it was, it was an amazing match because Margaret Court, I mean, that was her fifth and last French. And Chrissy, a lot of us thought she was ready to win it. She got tight. She was up a set in 5-3 and serving for it and made four unforced errors totally unlike her. And then they went to a tiebreak in the second set, and she actually was, at, I'll, I'll never forget it, she was two points away from winning it. And she thought that Margaret had hit a volley that was long, and she caught the ball in her hand. That was like a carryover from junior days, you know, and she was wrong. She knew it immediately. She didn't dispute the call, but she thought the ball was going out. So she caught it and that could have been match point there. So that's how close it was. But yes, that's the last time an Australian did it. And then it was kind of nice that Chrissy was there to present the trophy and, uh, you know, and and, and uh, it brought back memories of that. And here was Ash being the first since Margaret Court. There was that nice tie in. But Margaret people didn't realize that she was better known for her great grass court skills but boy she could play on clay she was more comfortable on clay than say Billie Jean King or Maria Bueno in my view and she did that was a that was one of her last great efforts she Mm. went on to win the US Open that year as well but that was a that was a very gritty victory over over Chrissie in the finals of the French.
0: Yeah, it's a very close score. I was just checking the other day; it was a, it went the distance. So let me ask you another question. Even though today tennis has evolved, and there are like very few specialists both on both tours, both men, women, uh, you know, and all conditions have also homogenized, so you can play the same kind of game at Wimbledon and still, of course, there are some differences. So the, the question I'm trying to present here is both Conta and Bardi come from countries where majors were played on grass, you know, when you were covering tennis in the 70s and stayed that way in Australia till they moved to Flinders Park. So are you surprised in your, uh, or does it surprise you when you see a Joe Conta or Sam Stozer or Ash Bardi uh, do well on clay? Because uh, is it against the norm like uh, Brits and Aussies haven't really done well at Roland Garros, or is it more like a, uh, it's like a perception for someone like me? Uh, how much truth is no, there? There's,
1: no, that's a valid, it's very valid. But I, I guess I just saw, I mean, I watched Sam getting to the finals of the French. I've seen the way these players adapted so surprisingly. And then you, you began to, to realize in, in the way the modern game is played. And there are not many, you know, you, you had more. There was a time when there were a lot of servant and volleyers like margaret court maria bueno billy jean king virginia wade uh, that the game has changed so i think players these days are able to move from surface to surface more comfortably than they once did and that's part of it too but it's to their credit and uh i think kana is great to watch as i say i wish she would have been in the finals for a lot of reasons but i think we're going to see her she'll be very dangerous on the grass as well in a few weeks
0: Yeah, I think that's what confidence does. I mean, uh, she really hadn't done well in uh, French Open prior years, but she did have a solid clay court season. She had some good wins. Uh, I think uh, she won a tournament, and then she also, uh, I think, reached semis in Rome. So, and there also she accounted for Sloan Stevens. So she definitely put on, I think, what, 15, 16 win clay uh, clay season wins. So I think that's gonna be a real good build up uh, for Grasco Tennis, uh, because Wimbledon's, you know, not too far ahead.
1: Yeah, she's just got, she's got her confidence back. I mean, she went through a a difficult stretch for a few years and now she's back and probably better than she's ever been before. And then I think Sloan didn't really, I didn't feel Sloan gave it away at all. I mean, Kana just plain beat her. So I, I, I'm encouraged about her as long as she doesn't let the Wimbledon crowds and their high expectations get in her way. You have to use that to your advantage murray learned that when he won his two titles in 13 and 16 and virginia wade when she finally won in 77 you have to let it be in your favor and not let it overwhelm you and i think joe has kind of grown into that i think she has more belief in herself right now and she should mm-hmm. be ready to do it she, she should be ready to make a deep run at wimbledon
0: okay let's talk about the locals i know this is a question that. Uh, associated with a lot of French players in the last, you know, I think Yannick Noah and Marie Pierce, I think otherwise you haven't seen maybe an occasional Andre Lacan final in 88, but this is a tournament where the locals really struggle and they adore this tournament, so in your experience of covering this event, is this the hardest home crowd or just something about the conditions that, uh, you know, France has had talent I mean, you know, Sangha, Monfils, and uh, you know, even back in the day, Guy Forget and uh, you know, Amelie Moresmo, we, we've had some world-class players. But this year, also Kiki Mladenovic and Carolyn Garcia, they all flamed out early. And same on the men's side, I think Monfils reached the round of 16, but uh, Luca Pui and uh, just uh, let's talk about women first. But yeah, uh, w- did you able to catch some of the Garcia or Mladenovic performances? And what were and what is your take on how the French play at their own backyard?
1: well they've I, I I feel like they've always fed off those crowds the men and the women you know they, they're the most by far the most vociferous crowds anywhere at, at the majors I mean the Australians are very animated but I don't think anybody they, they express it more robustly than the no crowds express it quite as directly and robustly as the French they're they're pretty remarkable in that regard and I think their players love it I think it's definitely unnerving too because they kind of let the opponents know that they don't have any time for them. This is just all-out passion for their their players. So, And I think as a result... But I have to say, I did not see... I only got glimpses of Garcia. I didn't see a lot of the, the French women in this tournament for different reasons. Why, you know, at various times, watching other players or more locked in on the other players. But I've, I've seen it through the years a lot. Hmm.
0: All right, so on that note, let's uh, bring in, uh, you know, uh, Rafael Nadal, you know, routine 12-time champion. I mean, uh, I still remember, uh, you know, going for my local club tennis match with a friend who's a big Nadal fan. The year is 2010. I think Nadal had just won his fifth or sixth French Open, and we were just saying... He kind of, like, you know, put me, he said, oh, you know about tennis, so how many he's going to win? I said, yeah, I think he's probably going to win a couple more. And that's going to be still something that may stand the test of time. And here we are, nine years later, he's still... Looks like the man to beat, and Dominic Team is a phenomenal clay court player. with the last two sets uh, doesn't really give much hope to the field. So, uh, how again? I'm sure there are not enough adjectives. How how is this? How impressive is this feat? And did you see number 11, 12 coming year after year? I mean, he just well, goes in is the standard on this tournament.
1: Yeah, it's it. I mean, there, it, what's remarkable about it is that we saw he had some tough struggles going back to after beating Djokovic to win it in 14 you know then he had the loss to Djokovic in the quarters then he had the wrist injury that forced him to default out in the third round so at that stage I wondered how many more but then you could see the way he was playing in 17 there was a great chance he was going to win it you could see last year there was a great chance I honestly thought Djokovic would win it this year I honestly thought he would lose to Novak in the finals uh, that was my feeling going in. And I felt that way all the way up till that crazy Friday with the, the gale force wins, that Djokovic was kind of primed for this. He hadn't lost a set. Everything was going very smoothly for him. But Raph is amazing. He's, he never loses his focus. And, and in some ways, he's playing better than ever on the clay because there's this ultra-aggression now. He, You know, it's a big, big change from the Nadal who won it in – 05, Even in 06 and 07 against Federer and, uh, and 08 again. I look at those early years, say the first four, there's a big difference in how he plays. And I think that started to happen around 10, 11, 12. He's, he just added a lot. He became more and more determined to end points quickly and decisively, to dictate points and not rely on wearing opponents down and on his speed and consistency. And it really, you know, it, it changed him immensely. So, I I mean, obviously we all knew we had a great chance this year, but I honestly believed believed going in that it was going to be Djokovic's year. And I am a little sorry we didn't get to see them meet uh, under the ideal circumstances with both of them rested and ready. I think we could have had a a blockbuster of a final.
0: Yeah, that's the final I think a lot of people were talking about since Australia and even in our podcast, Matt Semek, who... Uh, you know, is uh, my partner in crime for the site and the podcast. Uh, He said that could have been the biggest match in the open era because what was at stake, the second Novak slam, and Rafa, of course, now got the 18th. That's the closest he's ever got to uh, Roger Federer's uh, uh, slam count.
1: And and then, of course, his point is is well taken because we felt that way in a lot of ways about Australia. If there could have been a follow-up here, to see if Djokovic could beat him on these courts, I think people really underestimate Djokovic as a clay court player. I think what happened here was that he uh, he got way out of sorts about that weather. I think he was really upset by the weather, and and I think that really messed him up. I think yeah, I think in,
0: did... in a way it got to him. He's mentally very tough, and I think he was just not faced by the opponent. It was just you know he was super frustrated by the situation. And, Absolutely, and That's even exactly even he. Even it's under exactly. those situations, you know, he and Dominic team, he pushed him to to the very bitter end. I mean, it could have gone either way. So yeah,
1: and that and that's with Novak never playing even close to the. He was never near the top of his game. It's just that the second day, first day, the winds were so uh, ferocious that I mean, you saw it in the Dow Federer too. It was impossible to play really well. Nadal did a, st- a stunning job of handling the conditions. I mean, if anybody came remotely close to playing their normal brand of tennis, you could say it was Nadal. And, and Only he could have done that in that kind of weather. But I think that all the others three were, were definitely thrown off. But what Novak needed to do, I think the, the unfortunate thing from his standpoint was that what he needed to, his approach should have been, well, look, team is a big hitter. Team likes to knock the cover off the ball. Yes, he's got a beautiful slice backhand and he can defend. But what he likes more than anything else is setting himself up for a winner and just hurling himself into his shots and hitting them as hard as he can into the corners for outright winners off both sides. Well, he wasn't going to be able to do that in that. And, and here's Novak, who's a masterful percentage player, you know, who relies a lot on his defense and the ability to dictate. And I think he actually could have made it work for him and and did not. And that was the unfortunate the first day. Then the second day came back and played much better and, but it, it, it just didn't go his way uh, and I thought you know that to me the biggest point in that match by the way that nobody talked about was here they were coming back it's one set all he's down a break in the third and has a chance to break right up the back and bat and, and team holds so it's 4-1 then Djokovic gets all the way back to 4 all in that third with a break point for 5-4 they had this b- bizarre point where he put up a couple of lobs and Team was hitting a couple of very wobbly overheads, one that looked like it was going long that didn't. And finally, Team wins the point on a, on a let-cord winner, right out, you know, grazed off the cord, a backhand that just fell over. That was break point for 5-4. If Djokovic wins that point, I think that was an entirely different match. And I think he would have probably won it in four sets.
0: Yeah, I think so, I, I remember that point. I mean, you, you're right. But again, you know, like it's, uh, it, there are moments within, you know, within moments uh, that that sometimes change the direction of the match. Oh, yeah,
1: and absolutely. And listen, it's to team's credit. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that's what makes tennis such a compelling game is the, the turning points like that. And But I felt that Djokovic, even when he got it back into a fifth, there was never a sense to me that he really believed he was going to win, that he had that overwhelming desire and that intensity. And there was one moment in the fifth when he broke back for 3-4 in the fifth when he came back after the last rain break, and he managed to hold from break point down, then break, and now it's three four, and he's going to serve for four all, and he did a gesture to the crowd like of excitement. And
0: I mean, he, what- he's the only man who knows what it uh, feels like to hold all four in a row, right? And that's right. still incredible that he came so close, you know, oh, to, to, you know to repeat. It, so things, you think that things. also played a part in his mind, or you know, these guys uh, are so not focused. Too much. He probably... no
1: not too much I think his, what, what he, he just he was thinking much more about just getting this title mm-hmm. and I think much more interested in the idea of I want number 16 and I and I can get within one of Rafa more of that type of thing than necessarily the four in a row but the amazing thing is that's the third time he's been in a position to do it nobody talks about 2011 into 2012 when he won three in a row came and played Rafa in the finals in 2012 and lost that four-setter, where at one stage he won eight straight games to get back in the match, having been down two sets to love. They had to stop it early in the fourth when he was up a break.
0: Yeah, I remember Tony Nadal said they were lucky had that match continued because that's the year Djokovic was beating Nadal almost every year. So I remember that. And Reigns came and then yeah. Rafa came back rains next came day.
1: Yeah. Rafa, was, Rafa was unhappy because he thought they should have stopped it sooner because they were mm-hmm. playing through the, through the rain, which only got heavier at the end. But Novak had all the momentum on his side, and Rafa did a good job, regrouped, and beat him the next day. But my, what I'm saying is, we've we've had three of these now, where he did actually get the four in a row in 2015 and 2016. Narrowly lost out this year by losing a five-set semi, and, and narrowly lost out in 2012 by losing a four-set final to Nadal. So he's had some incredible periods of dominance at the majors.
0: No, it, it's you know like he's just you know making his way into record books, like maybe. Uh, no one else, or maybe you know he shared some of those records with Federer and Nadal. So let's talk about Federer before we come to team. He's because uh, he's another guy. Uh, if it was not for Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer would have won like you know maybe ten French Opens between them. You know that's how good they both have been on clay. And Djokovic, you know, to his credit, is the only man who's beaten Nadal seven, eight times on clay. So he's definitely. You know, in a league of his own as far as clay goes. So, how uh, how impressed are you with Federer's decision to come play on clay? Obviously, ranking-wise and match practice-wise, he got a lot. Uh, did you watch any of his matches? And uh, what's your takeaways from Federer? And what looms ahead as the grass starts? And you know, it's already started, but for Federer, it starts next week.
1: No, I saw I saw most of his matches, and uh, I think he had an, a, a very favorable draw. I was impressed the way he out-competed Stan Wawrinka, that was a beautifully played quarter, a match that he could have lost, and Stan had his chance there, and you know, he lost a couple of tiebreaks, and that was that was big, and Stan had the chance and could have been up, uh, he was serving for 5-3 in the third, he could have won that set, he didn't play either tiebreaker very well, but Roger played a really good first-rate match. What impressed me was he had the two clay court tournaments leading up to Roland Garros and then came in there. And there was no sense at any time in those three tournaments that he had not played on clay the last two seasons. You would never have known it. I I was really impressed with that because in the other years we always had Roger, you know, playing a regular clay court schedule. So, you know, one year to the next, you, you weren't surprised. This year I was surprised. And I didn't think he had a chance against Nadal to win even on a calm day once it was this once the supersonic winds arrived i thought (laughs) his chances went from five percent down to one percent because there was no way that he could play with the aggression that he wanted to exhibit uh against rafa on that kind of a day so i look i think he took a lot away to answer your question he took quite a bit away from it, it was a decision that proved to be well founded because he enjoyed himself i don't think he ever thought he could really win the tournament, but getting to the semis, losing to Nadal, he could easily accept that, and then it will actually help him on the road to Wimbledon, you know, uh, we'll see how many, uh, we, we, if he plays two grass court tournaments or one, uh, I, maybe he cuts it back to one, but I think that the, 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 that experience over in Europe on the red clay will serve him quite well.
0: Hmm. Okay, and then uh, deserving mention, because we had to talk about this man, Dominic Team. you know, he's becoming the third guy in Rafa Nadal's you know, like trilogy. This is third three-peat. For the first four or five wins, it was Roger Federer. For the next few years, uh, it was him and Djokovic. And now team hasn't challenged uh, Nadal at Roland Garros like he has done outside in the best-of-three format. But uh, this guy is a legit, I think, top two, top three clay court player right now. And sometime- oh, listen,
1: he is. Look at, look at the last four. First of all, he has a win a year for the last four years against Rafa. Who can say that? On clay, I mean. One win a year, four straight years. At Roland Garros, he has he loses a semi to Djokovic that they played on lenglon and, and, and then he, he loses a semi to Nadal and now two finals to Nadal. That's a, a remarkable record. So I, I think that you're absolutely right what you're saying about him. There's no doubt about it. And he his time will come. He worries me sometimes. He, he gets in. There are a few bad patches here and there where he, where he gets it, starts mishitting more balls than he should and his serve can go a little bit off, but he's a very resilient competitor. I do think, and we'll get to this. I know you want to talk about the schedule. I do think it, he was harmed a lot. I think Dow was going to beat him regardless, but I do think to play four straight days, even if it's not a lot of tennis every day, culminating with two and a half hours of tough tennis against Djokovic to finish off that match it's 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 just there's an injustice there Hmm. if the other play if the other player in Nadal's case plays Tuesday and then Friday and then Sunday and and on teams half of the draw whether it was going to be him or Djokovic they were going to be playing Thursday Friday Saturday and then come back Sunday it's too much
0: okay so let's talk about I, I was going to bring schedule later since we are going that direction and we'll come back to Dominic team maybe in a couple of minutes so what what went wrong I mean uh you know, look. Every tournament didn't have a roof, and weather interruptions were normal, especially at Wimbledon. But French French Open has had their share of rain delays. Uh, we haven't had many Monday finals, but uh, so what went wrong? I mean, that the the wind, you know, the crazy wind day. You think a lot of fans have been talking about that. That's the day when Djokovic's team should have been concluded, so they it could have given whoever won that match, you know, a rest day. Uh, but obviously, that the game was, you know. Ch- uh, pushed to next day and then the women's final, you know, was also pushed because this game was scheduled on Chatrier. So so talk about that uh, uneventful, you know, series of events. And then uh, Twitter makes a lot of noise and there were a lot of uh, uh, lot of scenarios floating around. So you were there in, in the press room. So walk us through, you know, what happened and what you've learned since.
1: Well, what happened, first thing that happened is that was just bad luck for everybody was that Wednesday total washout because that's when those quarters of Djokovic and team
0: should have been played
1: should have been played instead they had to each come back they each won in straight sets when they came back but it really was harmful to have to push them over to Thursday to then come back the next day and, uh, it, and then, then then we have the wins now I will say this I, I think it was clear to me the way that Djokovic left the court that he'd ha- he wanted no part of finishing the match that night. There was some clear weather after that. They could have maybe played a little more. I don't know if they could have gotten... I don't think there was gonna be... Uh, co- I don't think we were looking at two more good hours, but there might have been one more good hour. But I think he was so unhappy about the wins, I can't blame him. He, in his mind, it was unplayable that he, pre- he preferred the, 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 the less bad option of coming back Saturday in slightly better conditions, and that's all it was. It still wasn't great. You probably noticed the amount that Djokovic served in volley when he was serving into the win because he felt like he had to do it. It's not the way he likes to play, and over and over again in the ad court, he kept serving in volley, and there were times team could see it coming, and team could dip the return down low, make Novak volley up, and pass him, or sometimes just force the error on the volley. It was a predictable strategy, but that, again, was a question that the wind was still so strong, not nearly as strong as on Friday, but I'm, I'm just saying the key to it all was Wednesday. And that was just plain bad luck. And the beauty of that roof next year is that couldn't happen. They'd get those matches in. They'd start them early and play late. Okay, and- so
0: let me ask you another thing. There's another unforced according to you know many tennis fans like myself, this uh, has been the talking point for the last few days. When the semis were scheduled, the women were supposed to play, you know, at the same time, the two semis on, uh, I think, Simone Mathieu and uh, Suzanne Longlon. But the men were still scheduled. So that was also, uh, didn't sit well because uh, there was no rhyme or reason. They could have easily made uh, Djokovic's team uh, on on Longlon uh, and put one uh, of the women's semis on Chartier. Uh, I, I don't know, a uh, lot of people feel that the women's side of the draw was shortchanged. I know the Roland Garros argument was they wanted to just start them at the same time, and so they are ready for the final, but the same thing applied for the men. You know, like They've already lost a day, and why put Djokovic team uh, after Federer Nadal, when they could have just split uh, one semi each on both sides, on Longdon and Chartrier?
1: Well, I totally agree with that that assessment. Because that would have brought about a little more fairness. That would have given them a better chance to, get, to make it simultaneous and get them in. That would have been the wise decision. Because as you pointed out, you had the two women semis being played at the same time. They should have been, I think they should have been looking to do exactly the same thing with the men. Because they already knew they had some inequities there. And this would have been one of the ways to make it less of a, of a burden on Djokovic's half of the draw. I think that would have been the thing to do. I'm not. I don't know how in the end they came to that. I know that they were. It was smart scheduling up to a point to get so much played at the same time. That's true, but they needed to have more. They mm-hmm. needed to go that extra. They needed to have that extra step that you just described and put Djokovic on against Team at the same time. As uh, and they've done that in the past. They did that uh, in 16 when Djokovic played Team over on Langland. Murray was playing Stan Wawrinka in, in Chatrier. It's been done. So I'm not sure why they didn't elect to do it this time around.
0: And, and this is, you know, uh, on the back of like this tournament opened uh, the doors for, you know, first Sunday in 2007. Imagine if there was no play on Sunday, how backed up these matches would be because there are no light lights. And, uh, you know, Rain had a lot to say this fortnight.
1: Yeah, but that you put your finger on something else. The first Sunday, which frankly I think is an unnecessary session, but if you're going to be playing matches on the first Sunday, they should play more and they should get through the first round quicker. I, I, I'm I baffled by a lot of the decisions that were made this year. When they had their back to the wall, they made many good decisions, but it, it, it shouldn't have come to that. And then there was just the play... The just plain bad luck of what happened on Wednesday where it's so rare that you get a day like that in Paris where you can't play through some rain. But it was just such steady, forceful rain that they never really had a chance. And that that if only that that rain would have come on the first Wednesday rather than the second, we could have had a much – it would have been, made a big difference in the way that the, the whole event concluded.
0: No, sure. And clearly, just for the record, I'm also no fan of the first Sunday when they introduced in 2007. I think it's just another way of, you know, making more revenue, which is fine, which is fine. But I think this year, especially, you know, now it's easy to say in hindsight, when there was so much rain, I think that first Sunday, I think they got, what, 16 men's matches and 16 women's matches. I think that did help. But at the same time, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, something's got to give because... Uh, if weather continues because we're seeing you know weather conditions change even in New York it's become more humid than ever and the heat wave is there in the first week for the last eight to ten years if the rain is to stay in Paris I think then I think better decision making has to be made and and even going back to Chartier let me ask you this Uh, Chartier gets a roof and maybe uh, Longland gets a roof. So that's still only two show courts. I mean, what happens to the rest of the draw? That's always the case. We talk about Djokovic, Ferrer, and uh, Nadal, and Serena. But, you know, we're still not talking about the field. A roof cannot accommodate everyone.
1: No, there's only so much you can do. But what it ends up meaning is the same, at, same as what goes on at Wimbledon, where there's been so little rain and the open. But when you have that, at least the one roof or possibly two, then the, the tournament, at a certain stage in the second week, you're safe. You could never have a situation like we had this year with, with, with those quarterfinals getting washed out on Wednesday, and suddenly these players are going to play at least three of the last four days, but in the case of team, he played four straight days. And that's just it should, you never want to see that happen. Because to get back to your earlier point, I don't believe the team would have lost those last two sets one and one. I thought Rafa was terrific because he put aside that the disappointment of losing his serve at 5-6 in the second set. Both guys have been holding so easily. The Dow's up a set. I was sure we were going to get a tie break. He kind of threw that game away to drop the second set, took a bathroom break, came back, and he really, he just pushed himself to a physical and emotional level that was too much for team to deal with. But I think the team would have stayed with him much better than he did. To win one point in the first four games of the third set, that has to tell you something. Yes, Rafa was giving nothing away and was relentlessly aggressive. But Team was just a little bit, to me, he was fatigued. I really believe that. And he didn't want to go on about that in the press conference and come off as a guy that was just moaning and groaning and complaining. But I think it, the four days caught up with him there, and we saw it. And he, he did a little better job in the fourth. It was more competitive, but he was physically spent.
0: Hmm. So that's uh, that's a good way to bring back the conversation to the young, I mean, not so young, but, you know, Dominic Thiem is still a young man. And uh, like you said, uh, his clear credentials are uh, really, you know, in, in a league of his own, I think maybe just after Nadal, Djokovic and Federer, you know. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, we don't know what the future holds, but, you know, I still back him. I'm sure you back him to win a couple of these Roland Garros at least. But at the same time, you know, funny things have happened in sport. Nadal still stays. Maybe someone else starts winning. So you think this record already is as good as maybe some of the one-time winners? I know winning is the ultimate, but uh, Gaston Gaudio won this. Thomas Muster won this. Uh, Albert Costa won this. Uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero. I mean, I I put him high because uh, if there was no chickenpox, I think him and Guillermo Macoria would have had some say and challenged Rafael Nadal more. But... uh, uh, Dominic team. If, suppose if it hypothetical, if he doesn't win one of these, uh, is he still one of the more accomplished clay courters? You know, in the last say fifteen twenty years.
1: Oh, I think you you make a very good point. I mean, I I, I think in in fairness the, the, the problem is it still comes down to you, that you really need that French on your record. You you gotta have it on your record. So um, I hope for his sake that he gets one or two on there, and he's going to have at least five or six more years, uh, uh, maybe more. So I expect him to. But of the guys that you mentioned, the standout to me is Mooster because the only reason that Mooster got to number one in the world was he was winning so many clay court tournaments. He would win them away from Paris. He'd win. A, a, he was a, a pretty dominant force in his way on clay, and I, I, you know, more so than any of the others you mentioned, the Costas or the Ferreira. Ferreira was a great clay court player for sure, but I think what Mooster did was was phenomenal, and he was. To me, like a poor man's Nadal, a left-hander, physically imposing, and he just made you work so hard. And uh, I, I I saw him beat Chang to win the tournament in '95, and it was very very impressive.
0: Yeah, I mean he he definitely. would I think he has was 40 something titles, and maybe only two hardcore titles, and everything else has been on clay. And uh, he he did play you know a full clay schedule. Uh, So, anyway, so let's talk about some of the other, uh, you know, young players who, you know, came and did, uh, you know, good at Roland Garros. Let's talk about German uh, Sasha Zverev. Uh, A lot of hype surrounding this guy. And uh, his talk has taken a bit of a nosedive, but he had a good tournament win in Geneva, came back and defended his quarterfinal showing, but was outplayed by Novak Djokovic after he was serving for the first set. Well, yeah,
1: you said it. You said it. That was... I don't think he would have won the match anyway, but obviously, whatever chance he was going to have, that was a crucial moment. And he served at 30-15, at 5-4, 30-15. Djokovic played a good game to break him. And then from there, he just dominated him. I mean, and and Sasha, too many break point double faults. And that part I didn't like uh, in that, uh, you know, he can get very negative and you could tell he was upset with himself. And.
0: I think the belief think he, was not there. That's how I saw the second set. First set, I thought he came out hitting big, and he, he was did. in it. He did. But I think after the first set, the belief wasn't there. He wanted to win, but he was more like just, you know, suffering each point and talking to his box, which is norm for Zverev. But I, I think against Novak, that feeling it was, you know, shortchanged more. He got more exposed. And he, he was, I think, pretty candid himself. He said, look, after that first set, I, I don't think I was going to beat this guy. So that's clear. Well, he knows, but see, yeah. he
1: knows that he knows that Djokovic is is an unassailable front runner. So that was that had to weigh on his mind because Djokovic has the best winning percentage of any player after winning the first set, slightly better than Nadal and Sampras and Labor and a lot of other guys. Uh, it's it's a phenomenal record. He's in the range of about nine five nine point nine five nine in that range. And so I mean, Sasha's aware of that, but he could have competed better and I, I, I the negativity worries me at times because that we see him go through stretches where there's nothing phasing him and his serve is working beautifully and he you know and, and he's as good on clay as he is on hard courts at times like that but i thought he should have hung in there a little better and djokovic played beautifully after the first set he found his range but uh sasha's ad- attitude le- left something to be desired
0: absolutely and uh I don't know if you've talked to, like, some of the, you know, in the tennis community, what's the word like? Is Ivan Lendl, you know, uh, he's obviously the right man for the job, but is he going to, you know, uh, turn the tide on Sasha's various career? Of course, Sasha's way too young, and we all sometimes act very impatient. Like, you know, he's, like, 26 to 27. He's having a fine career, fine. He's just not been able to compete on those uh, Saturdays or Fridays, or you know, as the business and weekends. Uh, Have you talked to anyone, or are there any... Uh, what, what's the Lendl's way of uh, relationship that's being discussed in the tennis circles that sometime at the fan level, we don't get to hear. Uh, Have you heard anything? What's going on?
1: Well, I've just heard, no, I just heard that there was, there was some weird reason that Lendl didn't come to Paris, but I see they were together again this week on the grass over in Germany. And I I don't think there's going to be a problem there. And he, he also has said himself that his father, he still relies a lot on his father and you know, Yvonne is there for it. Sounds like, you know, he wants Yvonne there for similar reasons to what Andy Murray did this sort of inspiration, understanding what it takes to win slams, all of that stuff. But I think they're going to be fine. I think the problem is going to be that if Sasha doesn't make a move here, we haven't seen him. As you said, he protected his quarterfinal from a year ago, but that's the best he's done at any major. For a guy that's won the 1000s the way he has and been top four in the world, that's kind of disappointing. And I think if Lendl's not able to get him at least into a semi and hopefully a final at Wimbledon or the Open coming up, then, you know, there may just be disappointment on both sides and maybe it doesn't last. I think Lendl is a great coach. I think he, he scouts. He's he's serious. He looks at the game scientifically. He couldn't have a better coach to help him. And I hope that, I hope that things can work out a little better for the two of them because I, I don't think it was any accident that that uh, Lendl got Andy Murray, you know, it took him to that next level that finally got him those three majors. That was a, a Lendl had a lot to do with that.
0: No, no absolutely. I mean, I second that and I'm fully in the Lendl camp in that, you know, in, in the terms of belief from far that he can definitely be the factor. But even for Zverev, I mean, I would like to add uh, the, to the conversation. Uh, I know he sometimes is cranky and he sometimes is, uh, not, not sometimes, actually a lot of times of late. He's looking at the box and he's very critical of himself. Uh, to me, that's also a sign of how badly he wants this. Uh, I'm sure other players want it too. I think that's his personality. Maybe he got there a little bit ahead of himself by winning those Masters 1000. And now the reality setting in. He's having like uh, a slump here. He's still in the top 10. He still may qualify for London. But I think the expectations sometimes... Uh, be I, I think anything in life, the expectations just create this extra layer of pressure that maybe Karen Hachinov or Borna Chorich are not going through because they really haven't, uh, even though Khachanov has won the Masters 1000 in Bercy, but when they lose, the talk is a lot less when Zverev loses and maybe Zverev deserves it because he's won so much at the 1000 level.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think all of that is fair, but yes, he brings it on it a- you have to live up to your expectations and those of others. It's not easy. And you're right. We kind of all assume. But when you're doing the things that he was doing by, you know, when you're winning these 1000s and you're doing it for the past couple of years and you still can't get past the quarters of a slam, it's certainly not a problem with best of five and stamina. It's it's something inside his head. He puts a lot of pressure on himself. Hmm. And I, I just believe that you make a very good point about caring, And that some of the disgruntlement that we see is a product of of how much he he wants this all. But that my concern is that the negativity can really get in his way. And Mm -hmm. I would think that's something Lendl would would be working on with him to say, listen, you know, you've got to try to contain that a little more because you're showing your opponent. I mean, I think Djokovic could see how discouraged that Sasha was and other opponents the same. And then they're able to completely exploit that. So...
0: Yeah, you you cannot it. have that moment against the Novaks, the Rogers or the Nadals of the world. I mean, they not only they sense, they just seize on it very quickly. And they do. I think, they do. And I think that's what separates them for the field. So let's talk about the other young man, Stefano Sitsipas. He played, I think, the match of the tournament and maybe, uh, you know, one of the candidates for match of the year against Stan Wawrinka. Uh, and he has, has this, you know, meteoric rise. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, his talk's going up, and rightfully so, uh, he handles sometimes these losses and these situations better than Zverev. At least in the last five, six months, it looks like his his maturity level is there. Uh, of course, he's very young. He, you know, His press conferences are very candid. He's also wearing his emotions on his sleeve. Uh, so what were your takeaways from that match and overall game from Tsitsipas? And uh, uh, is he, I don't want to say is he for real. Of course, he is for real. But what are your impressions? What's, what has transpired so far? And uh, it, it's just the beginning, looks like.
1: Well, I think you sized it up well. I, I I actually think that he now at this point he's going to be wearing those expectations even more than Zarev. I mean, he, he's done such a he's improved so much over the last year. And even though Rafa was not playing well, uh, to beat Rafa on clay in three sets, you know, in front of a, a fervent crowd there in in Madrid, that that was a great effort. And and he, uh, he beat Novak last summer and beat Roger at the Australian to get to that semi. So he's he's certainly not daunted by any of the big names. His game I think his game matches up decently against all of them, all I do think Nadal will be a career long problem for him for a lot of reasons because of the, the, the lefty forehand up high to, to Stefanos's one hander. That's an issue. But overall I think he's got the right outlook, the right temperament, he's got the game. And I, I think, you know, we're going to see some some great things from him at both Wimbledon and the Open. And the match that you mentioned with Stan, that was a heartbreaker. And, you know, you're squandering 27 break points. I mean, you know, it, so much of it was his fault because these these were points that he either it was in neutral or dictating that he ended up losing those break points. At least five to ten of those were like that. And I could see how exasperated he was getting because it just got in his head. But I love the fact that he had. Uh, admitted that he cried afterwards and then he sent out a lot of tweets and he did a lot of social media and you you sense that he's another one who really cares cares deeply and uh and yet he's a decent good guy on top of all that as is zarab not to say that he isn't just as decent but i i like where sispidus is headed right now and i think he he's more than happy to take on the responsibility
0: yeah absolutely so on that note uh, let me ask uh, this is a question i wanted to ask you and i think this can be uh, the conclusive, you know, piece of this podcast. Every time a major uh, ends, you know, there a lot of opinions in the tennis community, fans, podcasting, writers. So Boris Becker said something. I think it was reported by BBC. And that's, I think, something kind of poignant at this situation. Because uh, Novak Djokovic is still the man to beat in every major he enters. Nadal's year is always defined by French Open, even though he's won US Open not too long ago, played two of the last three Australian finals. And Federer approaching his 30th birthday would be one of the top two or top three favorites to win Wimbledon, and Becker said, "You know, like these guys are great, but I want everyone who's younger than 28 to step up because, you know, you want to see these guys step up to the plate, not when these guys are gone." He said, "I want team or Sitsipas or wherever someone to win a major beating these guys, even if the order is to beat two of these three guys." So, and Becker also said, "This is more mental than forehands. It's more about a certain belief. It's about a certain mindset." I don't know if you get to read that on the plane, or have you seen that? And do you echo anything that Boris said?
1: I think. Well, I didn't see it, but it doesn't surprise me what he said. I agree with with most of it. Uh, it. It is important that one of those guys does it directly against one of the the big the big guns like that, and that that will really kind of propel them into the future and make a big difference. But uh, it's not easy. I remember writing a piece about Team you know, after he beat Rafa in Barcelona and I did a column on him and I was projecting about the French. And I said, I looking at looking at it, I said, I think he can beat Djokovic or Nadal, but not both. I, I really had that feeling that he was not going to be able to beat both of them back to back, that he was going to need the help of one of them losing to somebody else. And then maybe he could get the title that way. Then, of course, the other the other things came into play that we've already discussed about the schedule made it even tougher for him. But I think Boris is right. I think it is time for some of these guys in their twenties to step up. And even Carlos Moyá was quoted by Chris Clary in the New York Times today saying virtually the same thing. That you know that it. it, it in, in other words, people know that it, part of what's going on in this area is the enduring excellence and greatness of the of, of Roger Rafa and Novak. Nobody can take anything away three of the of of the all-time greats but it is time for guys in their 20s to start cashing in and playing big-time tennis and winning majors and and we're gonna see i mean you know it's 10 in a row to that group 10 in a row now at a time when some of these players are coming into the forefront of the game so it is time for one of them to step up
0: and uh, on the women's side i think it's quite the opposite there there is depth but the depth is more evenly distributed uh, unlike I think the men Men is still very top heavy Of course Sitsipas And uh, Zverev And some of these guys Even Felix Oji I think we can be talking more about In five, six months When you come in the podcast again He might be You know A fixture in the top ten But definitely the women have uh, Quite a variety And uh, in a In a very good way The women's draw is becoming unpredictable uh, They're not lacking star power but uh, the men, I mean, uh, you know, give me still djokovic federer final or Djokovic-Nadal final. I mean, these are great stories, but uh, I think it's, uh, I'm also agreeing with Boris that someone has to just uh, break, break through this and, you know, contend on a Sunday.
1: Yeah, you're right. Absolutely, but in turn, the women need some continuity also. It's why I thought it was a great thing that Osaka backed up her US Open win, particularly under the controversial circumstances in which it occurred, and then won Australia. I don't, I, and, I, and I'm and i very confident that Ash Barty will do the same, that Ash Barty will find a way to, we're going to see her get back on the board and win some more majors for sure. So I, I, you're right, it's nice to have diversity and a lot of players that are capable and a little bit of unpredictability. But I think the problem in the women's game has been too much unpredictability and not enough continuity.
0: All right, Steve. I think we covered uh, quite a lot and uh, you're very generous with your time as always. Hopefully, uh, the listeners will enjoy uh, each time you have graced the podcast. And we definitely plan to have you again because it's always fun.
1: Well, I'm happy to come on and your, your, your questions are always challenging and I know you're right on top of everything. And so it's always fun for me to exchange views. So thank you very much for having me on
0: and thanks everyone who tune, tunes in to the show. And please, uh, when the podcast is released, share it with your friends. And uh, we'll be recording another episode uh, talking about more Grasco Tennis. Uh, till then, it's bye from Sakib and Steve. Thanks for listening.
2: Welcome to this segment of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I'm Matt Zemek with Sakib Ali. And... Some weeks, Sakib and I are going to be the featured segment on this show uh, presented by Red Circle. And some weeks, we're going to be the sidebar segment. This week, it's it's a sidebar segment for us. Uh, we did hope that you enjoyed Steve Flink, the great tennis writer and historian with Sakib. We're not going to duplicate or uh, re- repeat any of the topics that Sakib and Steve talked about. So we're going to do just some of, we're going to do like a notebook segment, other players, other stories you might have missed. From Roland Garros. So to start, uh, one interesting choice that Sakeb and I were discussing uh, before we came on the air and planning this little segment, uh, Jan-Leonard Schroof, who has certainly made some clear and significant forward strides this year. He made the fourth round of Roland Garros. He beat Borna Chorich in that very long uh, third round match, uh, a, a significant step forward for him. So Sakeb uh, give your assessment of Jan-Leonard Struuf and what you might be expecting from him at the upcoming championships at Wimbledon.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a guy, uh, you know, who's made a solid transition. He kept improving last year and uh, this year, I think, starting uh, the grass court season. He's already played 31 matches and uh, had a pretty decent, uh, you, would, you, you would say, a clay swing. And uh, he he was always seen as an aggressive player, at least uh, by my account. And I think this uh, whole clay court uh, swing, where he accumulated quite a few wins, uh, is going to set him up. Uh, he's he has an outside chance to be seeded. I don't know what the exact numbers are, uh, but he already has defeated Dennis Shapovalov for the second or third time in this very uh, in this in this last couple of months. It looks like they keep finding each other in draws, and that's I think, uh, and it's a testimony to to Jan truth that when this draw came out, a lot of folks expected him to win this match and this is not a knock on Shapovalov, it's just uh, the strides that the German has made this year. He does play aggressive tennis, he comes to the net, his baseline game is, uh, I think, is solid enough to have him in, you know, situated in the top 40. Um, so he's, uh, he's one of those guys, I think, Matt, uh, you and I will be talking about uh, once Stuttgart is over and if he manages to get seated. Because he's definitely not in the first round out. Any of the top guys want. That's how I see. That's how I see his play. And even at uh, Roland Garros, he made the second week where he was uh, pretty much manhandled by Novak Djokovic, which is not a bad loss. But he did win a very eventful five-set marathon against Borna Coric, and then uh, yeah, he did beat Chapevolo on the way. So uh, one of those guys to look out for, and hopefully, uh, you know, he'll give us. Uh, Plenty to talk about as the grass season uh, unpacks. Uh, On that note, is there anyone else? I know we've talked a lot about Arina Sabalenka, you've written about her. Uh, Do you want to take this moment to see what this clay to grass swing uh, holds for her? Or what are your thoughts? I mean, when this name comes up, because a few months ago when this year started, this was a name that we all expected a lot of great things, and uh, time's definitely on our side, but uh, how do you see this from what you had in mind in January?
2: Yeah, well, I I will admit that I thought that Sabalenka was going to have a very strong season. So uh, from that standpoint, I've certainly whiffed, swung, and missed. Um, This is just the latest of very many examples from tennis history of a player making a surge in the second half of a season when, comparatively, the rest of the tour is increasingly more tired and worn down, and a younger player who hasn't played a lot of matches in the first half of the season you know, has fresher legs in August, September, October, and stacks together a lot of matches. So you could say that, you know, that was just kind of a mirage. I don't really think it's a mirage. I think that when you win so many three-set matches the way Sabalenka did, and the fact that she stood up to Naomi Osaka at the U.S. Open, that really was the detail which told me, okay, this, this person is competing on a higher level than most of her peers. That's what led me mostly to think that she was going to have a strong 2019. But of course, like many others, uh, a, a great second half of one year doesn't necessarily translate into a good full season the next year. She's definitely been punched in the teeth. Uh, the the interesting dynamic of this first half of the season for Sabalenka, one among many, is that she not only ran into Amanda Anisimova at both, the Australian Open and the French Open. It's not just that, but that she got you know, convincingly defeated both times on two different surfaces, didn't really have fundamental answers. You, know, you could say that the Australian Open was the ambush that nobody really anticipated. So you might think, okay, at the French Open, she's going to have some change-ups, but they really didn't emerge. So you could be somewhat concerned about that. Then again, Anna Somova led Ash Barty a set and three love in the semifinals and was this close to making a first major final. And, you know, if, if Anna Somova had made that final, she would have had a very good chance, I think, against Marketa Vandrushova. And if Anna Samova had won, you know, we'd all be talking about Sabalenka's losses to Anna Samova, not as some aberrational events but really as building blocks for Anna Samova on her way to the top. So the fact that she did lose twice to Anna Samova, convincingly at the majors in the first half of 2019, um, it's very easy to see those losses as disappointments, but it's just as easy to see those losses as the better player won. Uh, And and so that is part of the complicated story about Sabalenka. And, And, you know, stepping back and looking at the very big picture, she's still very young and... It is normal to have a really strong uh, season, especially a really strong second half, and then to struggle the next year as the rest of the tour adjusts. So really, to the next season, 2020, even though we have a second half of 2019 to worry about first, nevertheless, I think we can say relatively confidently at this point that 2020 is going to give us a fuller look into Sabalenka than anything that 2019 is going to provide. Everyone gets punched in the mouth to a certain degree, especially if you're younger. It's how you respond the following season after you've had some downtime to make adjustments and really fully reconsider your plan, your game plan. That's when you know more about young tennis players are revealed. So is, there's no time to panic with a player this young. But uh, I would, I would have to admit and concede how wrong I was in interpreting and and predicting Sabalenka's 2019 season. We're just going to have to see what uh, what the future brings.
0: No, and definitely uh, these are these are the stories that you know always uh, um, take a plot twist because you know there's nothing like uh, sports, just like like live theater. So you're right, Arina Sabalenka has a lot of time on her hand, and you know this is just the beginning. And uh, I'm sure uh, she'll give many opportunities on podcasts or, you know, written blogs like ours, where, you know, her name will be discussed at length. Uh, So let me ask uh, you about a veteran player, Uh, Grigor Dimitrov. You know, there's enough said you've written plenty about him and, you know, uh, you have a lot of faith in him as a tennis analyst yourself. So what did you see? Did you see any life back here with Radek Stepanek? I don't know what association Agassi still has, but did you see uh, some of his matches in Roland Garros, Did you see some something trending towards a positive note? Because his career has been, you know, peaks and valleys, and a lot was expected of the guy, so there's no secret. But what does the latest Dimitrov siding do for you? Does it inspire you to write more? Uh, do you see any hope, especially with Wimbledon coming up? A lot of folks think, you know, the match he lost against Bavrinka, it was a very testy match, he was really in it. So, yeah, it, because grass has already started, so... Well uh, just in your words uh, summarize what you've seen and you know what could this be a pathway for
2: Well you know as people who follow me on Twitter are very well aware of I have commented very frequently on how watching Grigor Dimitrov play tennis is such an exquisitely acutely painful experience because of all the disappointments that that watching a Dimitrov match provides and I and I was very particular in that phrasing It's disappointing and and painful to watch a Dimitrov match. I'm not saying that Dimitrov, the person, is disappointing because he has gone through shoulder problems. You know, that is is the concession and the acknowledgement I need to make when, when talking about the ups and downs that Dimitrov has been going through. That said, although he has had shoulder problems and that's been an impediment for him in his career, and that's not really something that anyone can blame Dimitrov for, it still remains that a lot of times in matches, you know, he will uh, hit a double fault in a first set tiebreaker, as he did against Marin Cilic in the second round of Roland Garros. He will get a break lead late in a set, and he won't be able to close down the set. Now, those are not shoulder problems; those are about a different body part, and so that is that is you know the long term challenge for Dimitrov. It has been his long term challenge. So at Roland Garros. This was a new side of Dimitrov. He did double fault in the first set against Choich, lost that first set, and then he battled back, and he won in five sets, and he showed a level of belief we don't always see for him. It it emerges once in a great while, you know, in the 2017 Australian Open semifinals against Rafael Nadal, and at the 2017 ATP finals in London. Every once in a while it's there, but can that belief become a regular everyday part of the way Grigor Dimitrov plays tennis. And he did lose in three tiebreak sets to Stan Wawrinka and it might be easy to say, "Oh, see, all the things that he did against Choich were undone in that match." No, you know, Wawrinka restored himself at Roland Garros, making the quarterfinals, and if you watched Wawrinka in Paris uh, over that fortnight, you know that he served huge in big moments. He wasn't totally locked in from the back of the court, but he served huge in big moments, he also saved break points like a madman. He saved 16 straight, uh, bridging the Sitzipas fourth-round match in the Federer quarterfinal. So that was more about Stan Vavrenka being great on, on big points in pressure moments than Dimitrov failing. So what I saw from Dimitrov in Paris, especially in the Choich match, but also in the Vavrenka match, that is a top-20 player, That even a top-15 player. And so if that version of Dimitrov sticks around, he's going to rise back up the charts. You know, he, He's taken his punches, but if he plays like that, and more specifically, if he competes like that, uh, I think that we will see him back in the top 20 where he definitely belongs. And then watching Gregor Dimitrov matches won't be quite so painful an experience anymore. So um, that, that's what I wanted to say about Dimitrov. And I know that you wanted to say a few things about Karen Hatchinoff who, you know, looked, you know, he, was, he received medical treatment uh, in the second round of this tournament against Gregoire Barre, uh, barely got out of that match. It was a real scrap, but once he did, you know, his his health improved, or at least, you know, problems did not continue to emerge or flare up, and he made the quarterfinals, losing to team, but beating Juan Martin Del Potro along the way. So, Saqib, uh, as we conclude our... Little sidebar segment here after the Steve Flink uh, main event uh, here on uh, tennis with an accent. Um, what 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 is your larger overview of Hatchinoff as we speak?
0: Uh, I, I think last year uh, when Hachov was struggling, he found some footing on clay, and this year again is no exception. Uh, I think dating back to Miami, he and then he didn't win a match. Uh, I think he lost five in a row, and then finally won something a match in Madrid, then two in Rome, and uh, right now his career, uh, year date record is barely over five hundred, fourteen wins and 13 losses. But uh, there's a lot of good momentum if uh, you are a Hachanov fan and you like his tennis because he's won seven or eight matches in the last three tournaments he's entered. And he's also broken into top 10. His top 10 debut is this Monday. Uh, first Russian to be there since uh, Mikhail Yuzhny, I think, was in 2011. So, yeah, a lot of, lot of good things there. Of course, there was a big racket swap that he did, and then uh, we all know at this level when someone gives away a racket I mean there is an adjustment period so uh, I think uh, he'll definitely be a factor uh, the way he's playing uh, last year even at Wimbledon he had a, a very entertaining uh, match against Djokovic it was pretty one-sided but the length of the rallies and the physical nature of the match was something uh, fun to watch you probably remember about that match because Djokovic just beat darkness and Hachanov at the same time he didn't want to uh, I think uh, get carried over for the next day if I'm not mistaken but yeah, there's, there's a lot of positive signs for the big Russian. Uh, the win over Del Potro, again, same situation in Paris. Uh, I was listening to radio commentary that day, and then I had to go pay a parking ticket. And by the time it came, down, came back, I thought <laughs> uh, I, I thought uh, the match is gone for the next, uh, you know, because they were like talking like 10 minutes left or nine minutes left. And then uh, I thought this is something that's going to be on TV next uh, next day. And then I saw the schedule, his match wasn't there. And then, of course, I realized he had won. So, yeah, that was a great win in uh, uh, about the 2nd round match against the Frenchman, Royer, and then he got the better of Martin Clizan. Uh, to me, I always look at these matches when someone's coming back, uh, you know, with, uh, with some sort of a losing streak that's ended. Uh, you look at the matches they're supposed to win. Of course, you know, he was no match to Dominic Team and he was very candid in the press that, you know, he realized team's an play good player and the level he's at, and that's all good. But some of the matches against Stebe and then Klizan, uh, these are the matches that, you know, re-emphasize or reinforce the confidence a guy should have if he's on the verge of top 10. And I think he did that at this tournament. And if he does survive a couple of rounds at Wimbledon, and if it's a dry Wimbledon, the baseline gets dried up pretty quick, he has the firepower, I think, to stay with most people there. Uh, again, a lot of people in our DMs don't like his forehand. And I'm not going to go into the technique. I, I see what they're saying, but at the same time, the guy does hit the ball with a lot of authority, moves pretty well. Uh, so, yeah, he, he's definitely one of those uh, dark horses. I mean, you know, if he's consistent enough, he might be a contender one day, but I would put him in the Dark Horse Nation, and definitely along with Jan Lunar Struff, he's one more guy to watch this week in Stuttgart if you're following the event.
2: Absolutely. I, I would only say that, uh, you know, Hatchinoff making a major quarterfinal you know, we, we've seen how hard it is for Alexander Zverev to make major quarterfinals. So, you know, if Hatchinoff gets into a pattern where he can regularly make quarterfinals the, the next year, year and a half, um, you know, that under these circumstances with the big three still very much in charge of the ATP and Dominic team, you know, being consistently now able to make Roland Garros finals, not just in isolation, but being able to stack them back to back. If if Kachanov is regularly making quarterfinals, that's pretty good for him at this point in his career.
0: Sorry, I was in mute. This could be one of the building blocks uh, going for the grass season, and these all these names: Sabalenka, Dimitrov, uh, Struff, and uh, Hachanov, I think uh, we will keep exchanging notes and uh, you know keep tracking their you know progress. And who knows, two three weeks from now, when we do a Wimbledon show, you know these guys might even uh, you know propel to a higher level uh, where we might be talking to them as may- maybe mini, you know, mini contenders from like Dark Horse Nation. So I think we can sign off now. Thanks for listening, whoever listened to this podcast. And uh, we'll be producing more content and the grass season and, has just started.
2: And, and, and Sakib, just want to say, I know they're not sponsoring us, but we have a friendship with the Australia-based sports, predictin-, sports prediction website and analytics website stats insider and we encourage you to visit them at statsinsider.com.au i know those guys at stats insider will appreciate that we want you to continue to check them out especially for women's world cup analytics
1: okay
0: so yeah that was a uh, uh, i think a good plug-in because we you know we are trying to establish a good faith friendship and even though they sponsored the last show said so like matt said uh, please check their work. Uh, it's pretty engaging across all formats. You can find, I think, tennis all year long. So on that note, uh, this is uh, yeah a goodbye from us, and we'll be back uh, next week with another show. Thanks for listening.